Hello everyone and welcome back to the Did They Do It podcast. I am your host McKinley Daw and happy new year everyone. Happy 2023. I feel like I don't feel any different but I feel like that's how every year is but thank you guys for listening to the podcast all year even though it's definitely been a little bit inconsistent as of recently but you guys are amazing and I have lots of fun ideas for the podcast coming up for the new year so keep an eye out for those. Some of them will probably be coming in the next month or two or so, something like that. I have the, the ideas, trying to plan them, but it's just a matter of when they get executed. So just keep an eye out for those. I also am going to be posting those Instagram stories that I talked about last week um, to get your thoughts on that episode by the time this comes out. So go take a look at those on the Instagram. The Instagram is at but did they do it pod. But let's hop into today's episode. So for today's episode, we will be talking about a very gruesome murder in Easton, Maryland, and about a man who spent over 20 years in jail for it. This is the Adeline Wilford case and the wrongful conviction of David Faulkner. Almost 36 years ago, on January 5th, 1987, just off Kingston Road near Easton, Maryland, a neighbor discovered the body of 64-year-old Adeline Wilford in her kitchen at 3 p.m. Adeline was laying face up, still wearing her coat and her glasses around her neck. There were groceries and her bag on the table. She had just gotten back from grocery shopping. She had numerous stab wounds to her arms, hands, and her face. The large butcher knife used to kill her was still embedded in her face when she was found. The police were immediately called and arrived at the scene within minutes. When they got there, they found that Adeline's car was parked in the driveway. Police observed that there was enough room between her car and the porch for another car to have been parked there. So now I'm not exactly sure what the outside layout of this house is or what this means. This is just what one of my sources said and... I just felt it was important to note because it was something that police observed. But I don't know. Like, I don't even really understand what that even means. Like, I can't decide if that means that she kind of quickly pulled into the driveway, not even caring to, like, pull up all the way. Or if there was a car parked there at one point. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I think the theory that a car was parked there when she pulled up is the most likely theory. Um, because of stuff we'll talk about later. Police began to search the house and found that a ground floor window in a utility room was propped open with a stick. So since it was obviously a cold January day, officers assumed that this was the entry point for whoever murdered Adeline. The state of the house indicated that whoever committed this murder, that their motive was robbery. The house was completely ransacked. Dresser drawers were left open with their contents scattered throughout the house and Adeline's pocketbook, her diamond and sapphire ring, as well as her wallet containing her credit cards and some cash were all missing. Officers lifted fingerprints from various places throughout the home, with the main focus being in the utility room through which the murderer would have entered. As officers tried to determine what exactly happened, they discovered that at 2.10 p.m., Adeline is pictured through a bank's security system as she drove her car through the drive-thru. So this is 50 minutes before she is found. Not even like when she's murdered until the time she is found. So what cops are theorizing 
is that someone came to rob the house while she was out running errands in the middle of the day, getting groceries, going to the bank, and that she came home earlier than the burglar was expecting and the burglar like freaked out, grabbed a knife from the kitchen through which he entered, which Alan entered through and that the burglar stabbed her. So that seems pretty likely, but that is such a small time window from her to go to the bank, back to her house to the moment she's murdered to the moment she's found is only 50 minutes. Like This happens so quick. It's insane. As time went on, police had little to go off of. At the time in 1987, there was no modern database to just automatically compare the palm prints that were lifted from the home with everyone already in this database. That technology just absolutely did not exist yet. So police did, however, conduct a few interviews immediately following the discovery of the body. One of these interviewees was Danny Keene. Danny reported that at 2 p.m. the day of the murder, he saw a silver Oldsmill cutlass backed up against the Wilford home. And I'll put a picture of this type of car on the Instagram, since it's not a super common make and model of car anymore, just so you can see what I'm talking about. The car Danny said he saw was a different make and model than the one in the driveway when cops arrived. So basically, when cops arrived to the house, that car was no longer there, and Adeline's car was. The officer who wrote up the report on this sighting did not include the time, which is the most important part of the sighting of this car. This critical detail was never disclosed to the defense by the prosecution. Two days after the murder, a $10,000 reward for information was offered. No information came forth from that reward, so they upped it to $25,000, but still without any information. Four years passed by. Four years with absolutely nothing happening, which is insane. And an article was published in the Eastern Star Democrat that basically just kind of tried to reignite everyone's thoughts on the case and once again mentioned that $25,000 reward. The day after this article came out, a man named James Brooks contacted the police saying he had information. James said that his friend William Thomas, also known as Boozy, was had told him that William and Ty Brooks, and Ty wasn't related to James Brooks, by the way, that's kind of an important thing to remember, burglarized the Wilford home and that William had stabbed Adeline to death with a butcher knife. And James gave a written statement in February of 1992 saying, quote, one summer evening of the year 1990, I was out on a drinking binge. I met up with Boozy Thomas and he asked me if I knew Adeline C. Wilford, the lady that was murdered in her house. He was me. What did I know about it? I said that from what I heard, she knew a little self-defense, so whoever killed her had to be either real strong or caught her by surprise. He told me he did it, and I called him a liar. I laughed for a while, then he said that he was going to tell me something and that I was going to tell no one, for if I did, he would find out and that I told, so I agreed. He said that he and a guy named Ty Brooks were in her house stealing, and the lady came home early on them. He had borrowed his sister's car. Miss Wilford noticed the car parked near her house and wrote the tag number of the car down before she entered the house. He took a butcher knife I believed hid behind the kitchen door. When she came in, he stabbed her to death and left her for dead. Postcard. Sorry, his grammar isn't the best, so if some of that didn't make sense, 
I just read directly what the statement said. But after the statement was given, police learned that William and Ty both fit a psychological profile created by police of what the killer would have been like just based on evidence in the home and the brutal, awful way that she was murdered. Which it seems very personal. How do you stab someone that many times and in the face and now can that not be personal? That just seems crazy to me. So both William and Ty were physically capable since obviously it was pretty brutal. And William had a prior conviction for armed robbery and Ty Brooks was involved with several burglaries during the time period when Adeline was killed. They were also both abusing drugs and alcohol at the time. James took a polygraph in February of 1992. The officer who administered the test said that he felt James might have been more directly involved with the crime than he was reporting and saying. They wanted him to take another polygraph, but basically he dished up and disappeared and cops couldn't find him to get him to take this other polygraph. They had no idea where he was. But police needed more information from James before they believed they could approach William and Ty about this. But obviously this information wasn't obtained. So cops never questioned William and Ty nor ever tried to compare their palm prints to the ones found in the home. So the murder remained unsolved until on December 30th, 1999, Adeline's son, Charles Wilford, asked state police to reopen the investigation, which they did. Charles told state police corporal John Bollinger that a retired state officer had said, quote, information existed from a potential witness, which indicated possible suspects in the case, close quote. So on January 14th, 2000, On January 14th, 2000, John Bollinger contacted this potential witness, whose name was Beverly Hathaway, who had spoken to police two times before about the murder. Once in September 1987, she told an Easton police officer that she had information about the murder, but she didn't really say anything. She didn't name any suspects, anything like that. In 1994, after her son, Sean Hathaway, was charged with unrelated criminal offenses, She spoke with a state trooper claiming that she saw three men, David Faulkner, Jonathan Smith, and Ray Andrews, in the area of the Wilford home the day of the murder. At the time, police didn't investigate these allegations. But then again in 2000, John Bollinger is going back and reinvestigating these allegations. So during the meeting John Bollinger had with Beverly, she said that she was driving with her friend, Thomas Marshall, near the intersection of Black Dog Alley and Kingston Road, when she saw Jonathan Smith, her 17-year-old nephew, with 22-year-old David Faulkner and Ray Andrews. Adeline Wilford's home was two and a half to three miles from this intersection. She claimed that she saw the three walking out of a cornfield. She said she stopped to talk to them and that Jonathan's shirt had blood splatters on it and that his arms had blood smears on them. When asked where the blood came from, Jonathan said that a dog had tried to bite him and that he killed the dog, and that's why he's covered in blood. She said shortly after this conversation, a truck pulled up behind her, and the three boys hopped into it, and they left. On April 11th, 2000, Beverly agreed to secretly record a conversation with Jonathan that basically she had heard rumors about his involvement in this murder and she was going to confront him about it. I'm going to read from the transcript of this conversation and keep in mind in the transcripts 
um, it refers to both Jonathan and Beverly by their last names. So they'll refer to Jonathan as Smith and Beverly as Hathaway. And keep in mind, they also don't have the best grammar, but I'm just reading straight from the transcript. So she asked, you know what day I seen you on Kingston Road when that old woman got murdered and you told me the dog bit you and you stabbed it? Who killed the old woman? You? You told me you did. I don't know, Smith replied. I think David done it, Hadaway said. Why was he wearing your coat? I don't know, Smith said. You're laughing, Hadaway said. Why did he? Smith said again, I don't know. Hideaway pressed him. I just wanted to know before I died. I always think that David done it. You? You just said you did. Why are you laughing? I didn't do nothing like that, Smith replied. Why were you in that field with blood all over you and no coat? Hadaway asked. You said that blood came off of a dog, but I think that you held her and David killed her, or one of you three done it. They never found out yet, have they? Smith said. Hadaway responded, I know. That's why I want to know before I die. I seen you. Did I ever tell anybody? You know I ain't going to tell. I just wanted to know if you'd done it. I didn't really think you did. I think Crazy David did. They could have, Smith said. It's a secret when one person knows it. Ain't a secret when two people know. Well, all three of you know, Hadaway said. What? There's only two of us, Smith said. It was you and Ray and David, Hadaway said. Ray wasn't there until after it was over, Smith said. Where was he, Hadaway asked. Down the road, Smith said. Ray was right with you in the field, Hadaway retorted. That was after it was all done with, Smith said. Hadaway asked why Wilford has, was killed, and Smith said, I don't know, I can't remember. Hadaway said, Jonathan, you're lying because you're laughing. Smith said, I can't remember. I ain't ever told anybody in 12 years, Hadaway said. I just wanted to know. She had money, Smith said. He added, that was a long time. I don't even remember it no more. You've done it, Hadaway said. You said you did before. Why did you kill her? I knew she had money, Smith said. Well, what the heck did you do with it, Jonathan? Hadaway asked. It must not have been much because you still walked to Cambridge or hitchhiked or went with David. You can't spend it all in one pile, Smith said. It's gone now. Spend a little bit here and a little bit there. You can't spend that much. That's how people will talk. I figured it was enough to buy two Ford Explorers. Did they get any, Hadaway asked. We split it three ways, Smith said. Hadaway asked how much he got. Smith said his share was $60,000. Smith went on to say that he had given himself his coat to Faulkner to wear and that it had blood on it because he had cut himself. He cut his own self, Hadaway asked. Just about, Smith said. That's what it looked like. She was asleep. She woke up. So you both stabbed her, Hadaway asked. "Uh Uh-huh, Smith said. So on April 25th, 2000, police brought in Jonathan, David, and Ray for questioning and to execute search warrants that were obtained for their hair, saliva, and palm prints. David Faulkner never made any admission of his involvement in the crime. However, Ray Andrews told officers during this interview that he, David, and Jonathan walked from Jonathan's house in Easton up Matthewstown Road to a friend's house in Swan Haven Trailer Park. When they arrived there, there, Jonathan and David said something to the friend about robbing. According to Ray, the three of them left that friend's house and walked several miles first down Black Dog Alley. Then they turned on the Kingston Road and walked past the Wilfords' house down the bridge over Kings Creek. They then turned back around, walked back toward the Wilford home. 
Ray said he waited at the edge of the woods off Kingston Road while David and Jonathan walked across a field to the Wilfords' house. Ray said that he saw the two go around the back of the house and then he lost sight of them. Ray said he saw a car pull into the driveway, then 20 minutes later he saw David and Jonathan running from the house towards him at the edge of the woods. Once at the woods, Jonathan and David told Ray to run, and Ray saw blood on Jonathan's shirt. He also recalls the conversation they had with Beverly. After that, they went to Jonathan's house, where he changed out of his bloody shirt. David and Jonathan then pulled out a ton of money from their pockets, what Ray estimated was 300 to $400, which could absolutely have not been true if they each got a cut of $60,000. This doesn't make sense. The next day, the news of the murder broke, and Ray said that Jonathan told him to keep his mouth shut about what had happened. Jonathan was questioned by two teams of officers for six to seven hours. He denied any involvement in the first half, then he sat locked up alone for several hours, and then they tried to question him a second time, and they tried to make him listen to the tape of his conversation with Beverly, but he physically couldn't hear it due to a serious hearing impairment that he has. According to a report written by Bollinger, after further questioning, Jonathan confessed to breaking into the Wilford home with David while Ray was outside. Bollinger said that Smith said Adeline came home while him and David were in the house and that David stabbed her several times and that Adeline fell into Jonathan during the attack and that's why he had blood on his shirt, which is stupid. You don't get that much blood on your shirt from someone bleeding falling onto you. Absolutely not. And, I mean, I guess they are saying that Jonathan gave David his coat, so maybe David had blood all over him and he was wearing his coat to cover it up. I don't know. It's crazy. So, none of the palm prints found at the scene matched any of the three boys. And all three of them were charged with burglary and murder that same day. So, after the charges were filed, DNA testing was performed on the fingernail scrapings that were taken from Adeline. All three boys and Adeline were excluded as the sources. So, obviously, she wasn't the one, she wasn't scraping at herself, and she wasn't scraping at these boys. So, these boys weren't the ones to hurt her. Ugh, I don't know. It's stupid. So, Ray Andrews entered an Alfred plea to the charge of voluntary manslaughter, basically acknowledging that there was enough evidence to convict him, but he didn't really want to go to trial, and he kind of maintained his innocence, and he agreed to testify for the prosecution against David and Jonathan. I'm not going to go deep into Jonathan Smith's trial, since I'm kind of mainly focusing on David Faulkner in this story, but Jonathan... But Jonathan Smith testified at his own trial and denied his involvement and said the statements he had given to Beverly and to police officers were false after the officers who interrogated him threatened him with lethal injection and that basically telling him he would never see his family again unless he confessed. So he was convicted of burglary and murder and sentenced to life in prison. On April 3rd, 2001, David Faulkner's trial began. A woman named Susan Fitzhugh said that she was the one riding with Beverly that night, which Beverly initially claimed a man named Thomas Marshall was riding with her. So now we have a completely different person, which in my mind is, means, uh, well, obviously she was lying. You definitely remember the person that was riding with you. That's not a small detail. That's 
pretty significant. And Susan said that David had blood on his pants and that Jonathan had blood on his shirts, pants, and boots, which is contrary to Beverly's statement, just saying that just Jonathan had blood on his shirts and his hands and nothing about David. So this is immediately contradictory to basically everything that Beverly had already said. Susan said that during the conversation, Susan said that during the conversation, Jonathan showed them a hunting knife and said they just killed a deer and they were heading into town to get someone to come help them with it. So no, he didn't. So this lady's saying he didn't kill the dog and oh my gosh, it's just absolutely insane how different these two stories are. So Beverly testified also at David's trial and she also added new details to this crazy story of hers. So for the first time, she claims she saw blood on David's pants from his kneecaps down to his white tennis shoes. And that blood was also smeared on David's face. Which you think that would be a really, really important detail that you would want to include. So now that this lady, Susan, is saying it, now Beverly has to say it. This is absolutely ridiculous. Obviously, she's lying because these... Details do not match up, and we'll talk more about how ridiculous this is later. But she also testified that she saw David wearing black gloves. She also testified about being at her mother's home later that night where she saw the three boys. She said she saw money and pieces of jewelry on the table and that David said Jonathan and Ray weren't going to get any money. She just overheard him saying that. Ray Andrews also testified at David's trial, basically saying the same thing he said in his statement to police. A jailhouse informant named Norman Jacobs testified that David told him that Jonathan stabbed Adeline after she came into the house and that Adeline bit Jonathan's finger during the struggle, but that since David was wearing gloves, he didn't leave any evidence. He also said he overheard Jonathan and David arguing over who did the most stabbing, which, wow. This is insane. In exchange for his testimony, Norman had received a lenient sentence. So, to me, I just think that this is completely irrelevant because obviously he was in it for a lenient sentence. And I don't know, this just seems ridiculous to me. Why would you just tell some random person in jail about this? Like, it's ridiculous. The jury was told that none of the palm or fingerprints were linked to any of the defendants and that the DNA didn't link any of the defendants either. The defense showed records showing that David was paid for 46 hours of work for that week. That included the day of the crime, Monday, January 5th, 1987. He worked at Tidewater Publishing Corporation in Centerville, Maryland, which was a 30-minute drive from the Wilford home. So he was not marked absent on January 5th, although other employees had been, which basically proves he was at work that day and not committing a murder. So I think that seems very significant to me that he was at work. And keep in mind, this murder happened in the middle of the day, the middle of the work day. He wasn't like off or anything. He was at work. So despite this, David was convicted of burglary and murder and sentenced to life in prison. Jonathan and David's convictions continued to be upheld despite appeals made. In 2011 and 2012, the Innocence Project and the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project filed Public Information Act requests on behalf of Jonathan and David. In response, the state police 
turned over several previously undisclosed recorded conversations between Bollinger and Beverly in 2001. In these conversations, Beverly threatens to testify in favor of Jonathan and David unless the prosecution dismissed the drug charges that were pending against her grandson. So that makes me think she was lying even more because she also had a stake in it, right? If she didn't give this, then her grandson was going to go to jail for drug charges. And she changed her story to make it sound worse. So even if it is real, she really did run into those boys. She obviously changed the story to make it look more like like worse for David and Jonathan and better for the prosecution, right? So the prosecution actually did end up dismissing these charges against her grandson um, in exchange for her testimony. Jonathan Smith's lawyer filed a petition to get the palm prints entered into the now existing database to see if there was match to anyone else because we know these boys aren't a match, which was this petition was granted and it concluded that the source of the palm print on the window and the washing machine in the utility room in the Wilford home matched Ty Brooks, who had been first implicated in 1991 by James Brooks. And they never looked into him, which years have passed. Years and years have passed. This could be over by now, right? Like, obviously these boys didn't do it, and they were already looking into this guy. They just didn't follow through. In 2015, David and Jonathan filed for writs of actual innocence. The petition were based on the identification of Ty Brooks as the source of the prints and the undisclosed conversations between Beverly and Bollinger. A week-long hearing was held to discuss this newfound evidence. James Brooks testified about the conversation he had with police in 1991 about William Thomas and Ty Brooks. The state officer said that an investigation was done and they found no connection between Jonathan Smith and David Faulkner and William Thomas and Ty Brooks. William was called as a witness but refused to testify and invoked his Fifth Amendment right to self-incrimination. The defense presented the undisclosed recorded conversations. Beverly told Bollinger that unless her grandson's charges were dismissed, she would testify for the defendants. And she even said, this goes actually kind of funny, she even said, quote, you can go get the newspapers, start printing, three people found innocent. That's good. So well, she obviously knew how absolutely influential her testimony was and that they could not win this case without it. So she manipulated, oh my gosh, she manipulated them into, oh my gosh, it's insane. Like, she's crazy. I mean, very smart, like, way to negotiate, but to but very wrong of her, very, very wrong of her. On June 21st, 2016, Judge Stephen Keogh denied the petition, saying that they did not prove their innocence. This newfound, this newfound evidence did not prove the boy's innocence. In 2017, the Maryland Court of Special Appeals reversed that previous ruling and said that all the evidence presented spoke to their innocence. A hearing was once again held, but the petitions were denied again. David and Jonathan once again filed petitions asking the Court of Special Appeals to take another look at the case. In September of 2019, the petitions were granted and the case was re-argued. In April 2020, the Court of Appeals granted both petitions and vacated both convictions and ordered a new trial. On February 3rd, 2021, the prosecution decided that they weren't going to retry David's case 
and they agreed to dismiss all charges if he remained arrest-free for a year. They intended to retry Jonathan, but Jonathan entered an Alfred plea to first-degree felony murder and burglary, and his sentence was suspended and he was relieved, released on five years probation. On February 3rd, 2022, all charges against David were dismissed since he remained arrest-free for a year. So who actually did do it? That is still being investigated, but as of now, no charges have been brought up against Ty Brooks because of the palm prints that were found inside the Wilford home that were his. Adeline Wilford will always be remembered for the positive influence she had in the community and for her love of gardening and helping young people. She had one son, Charles, and three daughters, Kate, Evelyn, and Grace, though Grace passed away in 1977 for reasons I couldn't find. She had three beautiful grandchildren at the time of her death, and that is the Adeline Wilford case. That one was crazy. That I think that one really shows, this case really shows the absolute insane lengthy process you have to go through um, of appeals and just all of the different places you can go and how to get them. It just shows that really well and they had to go through quite the process to get that done. But yeah, if I find it so sad that still it took so long for them to convict these three boys who weren't involved, at least they're saying that David for sure wasn't involved because they dismissed the charges, but it gets a little complicated. But then they convicted, and now there's nothing, right? Even though it's so long ago, her family has no closure now, and nothing has happened with it since, since February of 2022, so almost a year ago. But... Hopefully, we see updates with this case soon. Um, I will keep an eye on it just so I can keep you guys updated on what's going on with it. Um, I really hope they get this figured out. It's absolutely insane. And like I said, it seems very personal, right? She was stabbed so many times and you left the knife in her face. That's so sad and ugh, absolutely disturbing. But anyways, go take a look at all the pictures associated with this case. They'll be posted on our Instagram at but did they do it pod. Also check out our website that will be in the description of this episode. I will have all of the pictures and everything posted up there for the past few episodes. Uh, tomorrow, the website's always updated the day after the episodes come out. But I hope you guys all have a great week and I'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Bye guys.